Today on episode number 323, Dr. Renee Brathwaite shares his story of becoming a minority. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Joining me today is my friend and colleague, Dr. Renee Brathwaite. He is here to talk about growing up in Barbados and then moving to the United States and some of the cultural experiences he had as he became a minority. And he'll, that'll make a little bit more sense when you listen to the episode. Renee, as I mentioned, is my colleague. He works with me at Vanguard University of Southern California. He is our Dean for Professional Studies. And prior to that, he was at North Central University as a dean and also as a director of graduate and creative education. Renee, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. I'm so glad to be having this conversation with you. Feels a little bit weird since we work so closely together, so we're both going to have to work at not having a bunch of inside baseball conversations. So let's start actually with a place I know very little about. Tell me where you were born. Yeah, I was born in Barbados. It is a very tiny little island, the most easterly island of the uh, Caribbean nations. It's about 166 square miles. At the longest, it is 21 miles, and at the widest, it is 14 miles. Uh, It was first visited by the Spanish in 1511, but the Spanish never established a permanent settlement. In 1625, it was visited again by the Portuguese, They, too, did not establish a a permanent settlement. But in 1627, the British arrived, and they stayed there, and we were a British colony from 1627 all the way to 1966 when we gained independence. Um, It's known for tourism, but it is actually, the story about Barbados is much deeper than that, and its connections to the slave trade and connections to its influence in North America, South America, is very profound. What were you like as a little boy? Whoa, what was I like? Um, I was talkative, but stammered a lot. I had a lot of confidence issues, but I was curious about the world. And being the last of 10 children, you know, I kind of learned how to get along with a lot of different types of people. But my earliest memories are being a wanderer, right? I would just leave home and just walk around and just pick all kinds of strange grasses, you know, collect all kinds of strange insects. I had a wonder and a curiosity about the world and a sense, though, of a freedom and a sense of place that still is profound to me. I, you know, it's interesting. I grew up very, really, really poor, but I didn't know I was poor. That's one of the profound things about the way I grew up and the way my parents raised me, especially my mother. She always raised us with a sense of dignity about ourselves and a sense of our place in the world and imbued in us this confidence that where we start is not where we will end. 
I think that's interesting as little kids, those moments when we start to discover something about our socioeconomic status. What do you remember in terms of other aspects of your life or other times in your life where you started to notice a real difference around money, socioeconomic status, et cetera? Yeah. What's interesting is that I didn't get this revelation of being poor until I hit high school, right? Why that's interesting, at least in terms of my own identity formation, was that everyone was like me, right? I was surrounded by people who behaved like me, spoke like me, ate the same kinds of foods. I did not see the disparity. Now, we knew there were always people who were desperately, desperately poor. We were poor, but there were some who were desperate, desperately poor. But I had not, no significant contact with people who were ex- exceedingly wealthy either. So they, it was actually transformative for me when I went to high school. I went to a high school in Barbados, which is one of the oldest high schools um, um, in the country. It was founded in 1733. Now, I joke sometimes that I went to high school that's older than America. <laughs> that's not strictly true, but but going to that school, um, it was considered a very prestigious school. And being there, we saw lots of people who, I mean, some of the students drove cars to school. That was like, wow, students have cars? Unimaginable. And they would speak about going to riding and they would have horses and they would speak about going sailing on their sailboats. And I had no such experience up until that point. But I never felt threatened by that at all. They had their life. I had my life. And again, though, going back to what my mother instilled in me, that where you start is not where you'll end up, and that the great equalizer will be your education. And uh, so I pursued education, and uh, it, it is something, though, that is instilled. I, I, knew, I know now that this is something that is instilled to every child in Barbados. Our literacy rate currently stands at 99%, of fif- people 15 years or older. You compare that with the literacy state of the U.S., which is 86%. You understand there's a great, great emphasis in Barbados from very early on. A lot of that has to do with history. Post-slavery, um, the only way that many blacks in Barbados would actually be able to rise through the socioeconomic ranks was becoming educated. And the great dream, at least when I was in Barbados back then, the great dream was to have a son who was a doctor or a lawyer. But education and then was that way and that great equalizer to get you beyond where you started. What were some of your early memories around race? What? (laughs) What's that? I mean, early memories, I cannot, I don't really have a lot of really early memories around race. Remembering that I grew up in a very homogenous society. By and large, I mean, vast majority of the population was either black, or mixed. Now, by looking at me, you wouldn't tell that I'm mixed, but my ancestry is all mixed. And in fact, that is true about a good percentage of Barbadians. So growing up, I saw people that looked just like me all around. Now, there were some, and you know, uh, there was some tension in Barbados between the black community and the white community. And the tension was historical because though blacks were the vast majority, whites still held, because of the historical advantage, still held great economic power and sway over the country. But what is interesting to me as I look back and I analyze is that because the cultural power rested 
with the, the black majority because by the time it was growing up, the political power rested with the black majority. I had a sense that the world was just like me. So when I asked questions like, what is beautiful? I know they had the Barbie dolls and the Ken dolls and stuff. But if you asked me really in my heart of hearts, what is beautiful? The first image that came to me was someone that looked like my sisters or someone that looked like my mother, right? When you asked me who was intelligent, who was really brilliant? Again, the answers to those questions was not someone outside of my sphere. There were people who looked just like me, right? When you asked, well, who are the great athletes? It was people that looked like me. So I grew up, and I've described it this way, and I, I want to be careful and sensitive because it can be misunderstood. I grew up with a sense of what I would call black privilege. It's not as expansive as some of the other definitions of privilege, but privilege in the sense that my core identity was formed and reinforced with value systems that valued me. And that is a fundamental difference in my experience. And it's a transformative one at that. So I, I lived in a sense of this world is a world I can conquer because in this world, the answers to the question, what is right, what is good, what is beautiful, what is logical, what is just, those basic foundational worldview kinds of questions were asked in a way that I would ask them and were also answered in a way that valued me and valued my perspective. And so that is something that has actually informed me very deeply up until this day. It is also the cause of great consternation and a, a great shame for me because when I was in Barbados and I'd started to develop a kind of a global consciousness, right? An awareness of Barbados is not the world. I know it's funny. It's just a tiny spot on the map. But when I grew up and understood that, okay, Barbados is not the world, what is around? Of course, the natural place at that time in Barbadian history was not to look at, at Britain, which had been the historical motherland, as it were. Increasingly, it became the United States when I was kind of when it was coming of age. So when I looked around and looked at the United States, I have early memories of watching speeches by Martin Luther King Jr. and uh, and by others and seeing the plight of African Americans. But I did not understand it. In fact, I'll be so bold as to say I could not understand it. I could not understand living in a country where I was a second-class citizen, where the value system did not value me. So from that perspective, I used to say to myself, and sometimes out loud to the TV, yelling sometimes when I heard African-Americans speak, why don't you get over white America? Live your own life. Do your own thing. Don't be defined by a structure that does not appreciate or value you. Of course, looking back on it, it's a bit of shame because I was expressing a version of black privilege, really not understanding what it was like to be living in a world that defined you as other. When we fast forward to you moving to the United States, I just know, I say sarcastically, for those of you reading the transcript right now, that it all ended up rosy. You came over here, people valued you, no real differences in terms of feeling celebrated with all that you brought to the world, right? That's how the story is going to go, or perhaps not. <laughs> Tell us about coming to the United States. <laughs> perhaps not. No, I describe it this way. 
I describe coming to the United States as a second adolescence, a second experience of identity formation. I first noticed it when I would go into stores and realize the stereotypes were true. I would go into stores in New York and be followed. I would go into elevators and women would clutch their purses and maintain social distance from me. <laughs> I noticed it when I would go and try to get a cab and they wouldn't stop for me. I noticed it when police officers would, would come into our neighborhoods and that feeling of panic. These are not like us. They don't even understand us. They're not here for any good. That sounds strange. I know many people, when they see police show up, they automatically feel safe. Well, no, in African-American communities all over America, that was not the case. In Barbados, well, my cousin was a police officer. In Barbados, we knew lots of police officers and they were friends of our families. And when I spoke, I didn't have to interpret anything for them. They knew who I was. They could look at me and tell the difference between me and the person next to me. Whereas that was not true. Well, you know, I had that sense greatly of being deeply second class. I also had that sense, even as I rose through, you know, the Soke economic ladder and I started to get better and better jobs, I realized a very sad truth and sickening truth that I had to be half as good to get half as far as my white counterparts, that I had to be doubly prepared for meetings because I knew if I showed up just like my white counterparts with their two long hands, that's another Barbarian expression, with the two long hands, with no preparation, they'd get a pass, but I knew I would not get a pass. It was frightening at first, but what was actually, the, the two other things that really were, were frightening to me, that I, I learned that I could stand outside a school and know if that school was going to be predominantly white or predominantly black. That was fundamentally terrifying to me. Why? Because I knew the value of education in my life and how it was transforming me. And I knew it was a key to the future. And knowing that these schools look more like jails and more like places of torture and incarceration rather than places that would free the mind, it was terrifying to me because I knew that after having started at a socioeconomic disadvantage, you, when you combine that with an educational disadvantage, there's very little hope for progress. So that was terrifying to me. But what was actually more terrifying was when I started to raise my kids in America. I can regale you with stories of the stuff that I have had to endure and experience through my kids' eyes. I'll just let you know, Bonnie, that it was not easy. It was not easy. Basic assumptions about their gifts and abilities. Outright racist statements against them. Completely being ignored and underserved. And I said to myself, because by then, you know, we had, we had been rising up through the socioeconomic ladder. And I thought to myself, if they would do this to someone who has doctor in front of their name with resources, what must be happening to the rest of our black communities? So that transition really was a second adolescence for me. And it was where I learned how to be a minority. You talked about this, not anger, but this kind of, I, I, the best I could do in terms of words is this pride that you felt around, what's wrong with you? Why can't you, you know, get over this and, and stop being defined by the structure? And then now you're starting to be defined by this structure. 
I would love to have you talk a little bit about anger. And specifically, I just see us, and by us, I mean those in the majority. So in my case, I'm speaking of white people in the United States. Don't hold other people's anger very well at all. And I guess I could even go so far as to say white men. And I feel like any way out of any of this mess that we're in around gender, race, the only way out is to learn to hold each other's anger because we can't, as you said, and your young, your young mind thought if you just get over it, you know, mm-hmm. talk about anger, you know, talk about anger, whether it's anger about your kids, whether it's anger for you and just that wrestling with other people not holding your anger well, or did you experience that at all? Oh, let me fast forward to just a couple of years ago and a quote that is variously attributed to different authors. And I think inappropriately is assigned to St. Augustine. Uh, it just doesn't, I, I've read St. Augustine. It doesn't sound like him, right? But, but it goes like this. Hope has two beautiful daughters. Anger at the way things are and courage to act so that things don't remain the same. I think you must be able to be angry about issues. But it goes deeper than just anger. I was in Minneapolis when um, George Floyd was murdered. And when I saw that image of a human being killed on the street in such a blasé kind of a way, the officer who had his knee on the man's neck looked as though he were sitting on his couch. The thought occurred to me that the way out just can't be anger. Anger is important, but anger burns itself out. What we need really is something more than anger. I describe it this way. When you see something like that, maybe your first reaction is, well, look what happened to that guy. Isn't that sad? And you can be angry about what happened to that guy. But that doesn't really motivate change as far as I'm concerned. The next level where a lot of people stop at is that, well, that guy could be me. So we move from maybe anger and we, we move to more a more empathetic kind of a stance. That could be me. That's okay. But I still have hypothetical. The only way that real sustained change happens is when we start to say, not that that guy or that could be me, we then have to say, this is me. That knee is on my neck. This is my experience of coming really to America. I know what it's like not to have a knee on my neck. And I know what it's like to feel that knee in my neck. I'm being too afraid to push back too hard because I know if I push back too hard, that knee is going to kill me. This is not hypothetical, not that it could be me. No, no, no. This is me. This is my son. This is my daughter. This is my wife. Until that anger gets deeply seated in a common humanity, it'll just be anger. And it becomes misplaced. And it becomes forgotten because the hypotheticals don't have that force. Living in America took the hypothetical of being a black person in a majority country. It took that hypothetical and it made it abundantly real. So now I have these dual identities that are powerful, that are deep. I am both a man from the Caribbean, but Barbados specifically, but I am also a black American. Let me say to you though, Bonnie, how difficult it is for me to say that I am a black American. It took me a very, very long time. I lived in this country for many, 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 many years. 
before I even contemplated applying for citizenship. Now, there were other reasons, but the core, deep gut reason was this. I did not want to become a citizen of a country where simply because of the color of my skin, I was automatically going to be cast as a second-class citizen. So to say that I'm Black American, and to confess that, is a big deal for me, personally. Take us forward to when you started to teach, and what was it like to take that man from the Caribbean, that Black American, into the college classroom? That was actually very exciting. I had taught a lot in various venues and different kinds of, of places, but my formal introduction to being in charge of a classroom in the United States occurred really as part of my teaching practicum for the seminary that I attended. A common practice for me when I would enter classrooms was that I would go and sit in the back. I actually had wait for after the class began, and there was this like, you know, this questioning ear in the classroom, what's going on? Where's the professor? I'd hear them chat, I'd hear them talk. And I just enjoy listening to them because back then, I guess I, they couldn't tell how old I was. They just thought I may have been a, just an older student in the class myself. So then after this tumult would erupt about where's the professor, I would walk up to the front. And I kid you not, it was a classroom of predominantly uh, Midwestern white students, lovely, lovely students. But you could hear the air being sucked out of the room when I stood at the podium to teach. They were so shocked. At first, it took me aback. I mean, I, just, I, I was there just to observe in the beginning, right? But the first time it happened, I was a bit startled by it. And then I got accustomed to it later on. But I was startled. But then I realized this was the first time for many of them to ever have a black man teaching them. It was a shock to them. And it was not anything personal. It was just unusual. I learned early on, though, not to leave my Caribbean self behind because it was important for my students to know the filter through which they were receiving this knowledge and this teaching. So I would ask them a question because I learned that you have to name the elephant in the room, right? You just, you just can't pretend that it's, it's not there. So I would ask them a question. What language am I speaking? And they'd all say in course, English. And I would say, no, I am not speaking English, at least not any kind of English that you understand or you know about. They look at me strangely and said, no, I am from the Caribbean. And I would describe what it was like to be a Caribbean. I would show pictures of Caribbean scenes. I'd say, see that beach? That's where I spent most of my life, right? You see that place? That's where I grew up, right? Because I felt the responsibility of broadening their minds. Really what I was trying to do ultimately was problematize their concept of black and white. I was trying to problematize their concept of race and try to help them to see that the world is not made up of black Americans and white Americans. There are people from different countries with different experiences. Ultimately, I would say to them, and I've kept on saying it for many, many years now, I, was, I say to them, half of your learning in this class is to learn me. Maybe that's an overstatement, but I don't think it is. I think in order to teach students effectively, you need to bring your whole self to the classroom environment because that is part of the richness that allows them to engage their ideas 
from different points of view without feeling as though they have to submit to this orthodoxy. That here it is, your professor does not fit in either of these cultures neatly, but yet this professor cares. This professor is knowledgeable. This professor is pushing me and guiding me. But yet he brings a completely different perspective to the classroom. When he gets excited, he speaks in this Bajan accent that I can hardly understand. But by the end of the class, I know exactly what he's saying. This too becomes part of this wonderful, rich learning experience. I sort of learned that that Caribbean person, rather than being a hindrance to my students understanding the material, helps my students process this material and gives them a way to be themselves. Because in our classes, if they're stuck in this dichotomy between the black and white America and the neat boxes that function in between those categories, they don't always find themselves. There are all these invisible ethnicities or invisible identities is probably a better word that these students are bringing to the classroom. That me being myself and my quirky sense of humor and my weird idioms provides a space for them to likewise be idiosyncratic. And in so doing, I get to meet them, not as a, an archetype or a stereotype, but I get to meet them for who they are. And then at that point, that's where the training begins. Because I, I really don't believe you can teach someone until they first deeply connect with you as a teacher. Now, you can lecture to them. That's one thing. You can spout information. But to do the kind of fundamental teaching that I want to do that changes worldviews and, and, and inspires and, and sets people on fire and gives people wings, in order to do that, my heart must touch their heart. And their heart must touch my heart. And there has to be what Reuven Feuerstein calls this intentionality, which meets the reciprocity. So the intentionality of the teacher, I am going to teach you something. The reciprocity is, I want to be taught by you. That's what the student says. And in that connection, then we can evoke or educe these transcendent principles that allow them to take that learning from that classroom to wherever they go. That's what I want to do. And I think my Caribbean self. And it's not a stereotype. I don't come into class saying, yeah, man, we'll go down. I don't come to the classroom like that. In fact, Barbadian culture is not like that at all. Most students are surprised that most of us don't smoke marijuana. Most of us don't spend all our lives at the beach. We, you do that as a teenager, but you grow out of it. We don't show up to work in shorts. And very few of us actually have Hawaiian shirts or flowered shirts. That's a stupid stereotype. We're actually a very conservative culture. When I come to the class, though, so I'm not bringing stereotypes. I'm bringing the real Barbadian. And that real Barbadian I've found over the years has great resonance. Because I think I'm able to talk to them as a young man who grew up as part of the majority culture and had a transition to becoming part of minority culture and have to, having to learn then how to code switch, not just in words, but in, in behavior as well. And knowing how to do that successfully without losing my primary identity. I think that's a gift that I'm able to give to my students. The teacher and author Stephen Brookfield has written over 30 books about teaching. And I've had the opportunity to interview him a number of times. And I love that my nerves can come down a little bit because of his writing about becoming. He writes in very authentic ways 
mostly about challenges that he's experienced, mostly about failures, mostly about his struggle to do the very thing you just described, wanting that transformative kind of connection, both between him and between his students. Would you share how you are still becoming as a teacher? I'll respond by saying something. I'm going to attribute it incorrectly because I don't remember Jennifer's name. It was in a live session where I was asked, as a panelist to talk about responses to George Floyd's murder and responses to uh, and the riots in Minneapolis and so on. And he was a white man and he said, one of the things he wants and he prays for is that his heart would not stop breaking. Strange thing to say, but I think for me, this is the key part of me becoming, that my heart would not stop breaking for my students. But whenever I look at my students, I'm not just looking at people to whom I dispense information. I am looking at a valuable human being. And depending on your theology, perhaps this human being is an eternal being. That what I'm doing is contributing to that human being's life, maybe eternally. And so I cannot help then but look at the world, not from my perspective, but from theirs. I don't see myself as a teacher in the ordinary sense of the word of dispensing information. I see myself as a teacher in the sense of setting people on fire, giving them wings, supporting them. But I can't do that if my heart doesn't break for them and for the things that break their hearts. So it's a constant, constant evolution because every year those students are different. They're pesky, aren't they, right? You think you got them. All right, I got this group. I know them. And then they go change on you. Part of the breaking of my heart is really constantly becoming a student of my students. Ever so often, and I, I go back to pop culture again. The older I get, the harder it is. <laughs> but I go back and I listen to all the popular songs again. I put my Google Play music on to all the popular stations. And I watch the popular movies again and I, because I want to refresh my cultural vocabulary. It's getting harder, I, I, I must admit, because some of the stuff as I get older seems more and more inane. <laughs> And it seems as though we're circling around the same wagons. But the truth is, for this new set of students, this is brand new. This is a new world for them. They don't have a memory of all this stuff happening before. So I have to take it for what it is and learn their idioms, learn their language. And so that's, that's part of me becoming. The becoming for me is, is leaning into them. I've had practice with this, though, because when you move to a different country as an adult, you have to go through that second adolescence, right, that transformation. Of course, having moved quite a bit across the country, I've gone through many transformations all the time because America is huge. There is no one American culture. So every place I've moved to, I've had to adapt to a new culture. And so it's become a habit of mine now to ask the question of what does it mean to express who I am? Not in ways that I can be understood, but in ways that I can understand. I don't think I could do that as effectively as I think I am without having grown up in a country that valued me for who I was, not who I would become, or did not judge me by a standard that I could never live up to. That fundamental security about who I am allows me to code switch, sometimes in ways that, frankly, other minority groups don't understand me. Why are you bending so far? Why, you know, what are you doing, they would say. And my answer is that I know who I am. And my job here is not to be understood. 
my job here is to understand because when I'm engaged in that process, and this is the interesting part, at least to me, when I'm engaged like that, people around find that to be winsome. I'm able to engage in very deep conversations with others, and I'm able to be a bridge because then when I open up and tell my own personal stories, my journey, they say, will this happen to you? See, I'm not seen as a distant foreigner, right? I'm seen as someone who was a friend of theirs and who was an ally who first sought to understand. And that actually has given me a lot of voice in many spheres. This is the point in the show where we each get to give our recommendations. And despite the fact that I know that when people listen to this episode, this very sad event, more time will have passed between it. But Representative John Lewis, a stalwart of the civil rights era, died As of this recording this past Friday, we take a look at his life, lessons, and legacy. I am reading from an introduction of a podcast episode I would recommend that you all go listen to. It's from the New York Times. It's their daily podcast. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. And for those of you who may be listening, not familiar with who he was, Mr. Lewis, a son of sharecroppers and an apostle of nonviolence who was bloodied at Selma, Alabama and across the Jim Crow South and the historic struggle for racial equality, and who then carried a mantle of moral authority into Congress, died on Friday. He was 80. Bipartisan praise poured in for the civil rights leader as friends, colleagues, and admirers reached for the appropriate superlatives to sum up an extraordinary life. Mr. Lewis risked his life for justice. And what I loved about this episode, and I, of course, it's so wonderful to see so many stories of the incredible ways he has transformed this country, both with his life, but also with his incredible influence. It wasn't just about him. It was about the ways in which he showed people a picture that they could carry with them. And what I liked about this episode specifically, that there was a lot of footage, because it's easy to, you know, something like this happens, a wonderful, incredible person dies. And so we think about sort of the recency of that. But this episode was able to, for me, encapsulate so many recordings. Podcasting is such an intimate medium that I just loved being able to be sort of transformed away from the sorrows about his death to really the impact of his life over decades and decades and decades. So I'd encourage everyone to go listen to that episode. I'd love to hear from you if you do and and let me know if it moved you in the same way that it did me. And Renee, I'm going to pass it over to you for your recommendations. Excellent. I do have a few general recommendations and I have a, a book that I really want everyone to engage if you have not already. So here are some of my general recommendations. The first and most important as we we are teachers is that we need to check our basic assumptions about what is good, what is right, what is beautiful, because these things affect our assessment of students' work. And if we're not careful, our bias shows through profoundly. I'll give an example. I was teaching preachers in a seminary and the method of evaluation was writing papers. That's a basic assumption, right? You write papers. But it's amazing to me that the people who could write papers couldn't preach. And, and we asked the question, well, why is it that you are assessing something that is not really an outcome, a true outcome for a program like this? Our outcome is not people who can write academic papers. Our outcome is for people who are going to preach. Why wouldn't you do something oral? What I found was that 
there's a lot of implicit bias in how we assess. So I'd say check our assumptions, basic assumptions. I think the second thing I would suggest is there's a phrase that I hear people say all the time, and well-meaning people say it, that they want to give voice to the voiceless. No, 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 no. Let's reverse that. We need to give ears to the earless. People have voices. You're just not listening. Let's be listening, listening to our students, listening to those around us. That posture of listening is going to transform our students. Here's an exercise that I think would be very useful. I've used it many times over the years. I got it from a mentor of mine in pedagogy, Dr. Ruth Burgess. She gave, gave a lesson and she told us all to bring a heritage box to class, a small box with things that represented your culture. Now, the first pushback I got and I was surprised about was white students who said, I don't have a culture, I'm just white. Oh, so we had some really important conversations about culture and about how white is not a culture, but white doesn't exist. Neither is black, by the way. These are categories that we have, or fictions that we've created as these superordinate categories, but they really don't fundamentally exist. It is really culture that drives us. This exercise allows us to see what students are bringing to the table, right? It's interesting, one of the students was a southerner. He brought a picture of a, a shotgun and a Confederate flag Right? And it was, we had some really good discussions about that and his grandfather's Bible. It was great discussions. That is his culture. That is his heritage. And so we have to listen and do business with sometimes the things that we might consider to be controversial so that we can come out the other side of students who can actually listen to one another and see how they themselves are situated, but also be able to recognize how another person is situated. My last recommendation is a book. I mentioned his name before. It's a book by Reuven Feuerstein. Well, actually a book about Reuven Feuerstein. Reuven Feuerstein was a very important cognitive psychologist who moved us away from this chronological kind of behaviorism and the stage theory to an understanding that people don't grow simply because of time. People grow because they have been mediated. And we can accelerate that growth in people because they have mediators who stand between the organism and the stimulus to generate a response that leads to growth. Most learning systems, and you just put the organism and the stimulus and you watch and you hope things work out. His method is very focused on mediated, it's called mediated learning. A great book that describes his work is called Changing Brain Structure Through Cross-Cultural Learning. It's written by the professor I mentioned, Dr. Ruth Burgess, but it's a fascinating take. He was one of the very earliest that argued that learning actually does in fact change the structure of the brain. And that intelligence, or what we call intelligence, is not something that's fixed, but that with right mediation can actually improve vastly over time. A very important resource. Again, when I talk about what we do as educators, it's not just simply disseminating information. It's about changing these lives forever. I think that we can do this. And in the context of America today, what we need are educators who can shorten that gap, who can do for me what people like my uncle did for me and early educators in my life did for me. Though I was born very poor and last of 10 with a very tough circumstances, yet they saw something in me. They mediated me. They called out something from me that I wasn't sure existed at all. 
this is a the great opportunity we have as as educators, and I hope that we rise to that call because America, America's future, blacks and people of color in America, they're counting on us. Thank you so much for joining me for today's conversation on teaching in higher ed. It's been fun to take some of our work conversations and bring them into this community because they're seeking so many of the same things we've talked about today. Thank you so much, Bonnie. My pleasure. And please feel free to invite me any other time. I so enjoyed getting to know Renee even better than I did when we started. And I hope that you did as well. If you would like to learn more about Renee and see some of the links to the recommendations and other things from the episode, head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash 323. You also may want to head over to teachinginhighered.com, the homepage. There you can find out more information about my book, about productivity and teaching. And then down a little lower on the homepage, teachinginhighered.com is the subscription where you can get sometimes weekly emails with an article about teaching or productivity written by me. So head on over to teachinginhighered.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.